Isaiah 12, uh, verses 1 through 6. You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation, and you will say in that day, Give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion. For great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Your words uh, show us not only what this world is like and where we're to go, but it also reveals to us who you are. And as we continue in this series looking at uh, through Isaiah, at who you are, we pray that you would give us clarity of vision again. Renew our understanding of who you are. May we grow in our intimate knowledge of who you are so that we might love you and trust you and rely upon you and delight in you and have our hopes set on you. So uh, be at work by your Holy Spirit to show us Jesus in this passage today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. When uh, Evelyn was young, we sent her to uh, a charter school that uh, focused on the arts, arts-based school here in Winston-Salem. And uh, one of the things we really liked about that school is every month they had a sing-along. Um, and so uh, the whole school would gather on a Friday uh, I think it was an afternoon. It would be the last thing of the week. And uh, everyone would cram into this tiny space. And uh, there were a few musicians there that would lead everyone in, in corporate singing. And uh, it was a beautiful experience. Um, they talked about why they did that as a school. And they said that there just really isn't a lot of opportunity for communal singing anymore. It was something that they felt had really been lost, that people didn't gather just to sing together. Um, and... Uh, I think that's largely because it was not a very churched community. A lot of the people in that uh, school had no connection to uh, faith communities. Uh, they weren't in community choirs or anything like that. And so um, this, they didn't have any context where they could gather together and sing songs. And so uh, it was sort of a sweet experience um, that was pretty familiar to us because we gathered and sing every week with, with God's people. But a lot of those people had nowhere to do that. Um, and, and you could tell there was a real longing for some reason and for some people to gather to sing together. And I think that revealed that there is this deep human instinct to sing uh, and to sing with others. And so as I've been reflecting this week on that and on our text, I was thinking, why is it that people sing? Why do we sing? What's, what's that about? You know, birds sing. And there are other animals, apparently, I, I looked it up, that sing as well. 
I didn't know there's some mice that sing. That was new to me, but there are mice that sing. Um, and most people say that the reason animals sing is because it's a way of communicating to other animals. Some of it has to do with their mating rituals. Some of it has to do with territory. But as far as I can tell, only humans sing to express the beauty and also the tragedy of life in a way that goes beyond just mere words. Uh, we sing to express love and joy and hope and victory, but also pain and anger and confusion and tragedy and loss because there is a depth and a fullness to humanity that only singing seems to be able to point to, that there's something transcendent about our experience. And, you know, that's what all the arts do to a certain extent. They point to something transcendent, something beyond this world. And singing is one form of that, where we, we, we nod to something greater and we express this depth of our humanity. Uh, you'll see, I hope, in a moment why uh, I'm talking about singing. Uh, we've been in the book of Isaiah. We've jumped around to a lot of different places. We've been looking at God, who Isaiah calls the Holy One of Israel. We saw that in our passage today. Um, and we've been trying to uh, have a renewed vision of who God is by looking at his attributes, by looking at his character, at his works. We've seen that God is holy, that he is not like us. He, there is none like him. He is a totally different type of being altogether. He is simple, that, that uh, he is a necessary being, that all that is God is one. So all his different attributes that we talk about, the way we try to describe who God is, they're really just different ways of talking about the same simple essence that is God. He's not complex like you and I. He can't be divided into parts. He's not dependent like we are. He's independent. He's eternal, almighty, unchanging. I could go on and on, right? We've seen his character in Isaiah, that he is steadfast love, that he is gracious and patient and just and compassionate. And we've seen the sort of works that our God does. He's the creator and the ruler and the redeemer and savior and the one who sets his love upon us, as we saw last week. But today in our passage, um, we hear Isaiah say that God is our strength and our salvation and our song. Our strength and our salvation and our song. This passage comes at the very end of the first section of Isaiah, the first 12 chapters or so, Isaiah is basically announcing judgment on Israel. He's saying, I called you to be my people. I rescued you. I called you to live in a distinct way in the world, a way full of life that would bring prosperity to you and to all the nations. All the nations would see the way that you live and the God that you worship, and they would flock to you, and it would bring prosperity and life to the world. And yet Israel has gone and worshiped other gods, and because of that, they have become corrupt and they've started living like the other nations, which has only brought death and chaos and oppression to Israel. And because of that, God says, I'm not going to tolerate it. I'm going to judge you. I'm going to let the nations overrun you and take you into exile. And so um, even though they were supposed to flourish in God's presence in the land, now they're going to be sent into exile. Assyria is going to come and destroy them. But at the last part of this chapter, uh, part of Isaiah uh, verses 11 and 12, or chapters 11 and 12, God begins to say, but I will save you from this. There will be a remnant. There will be salvation for some. There is darkness, but there will be a light. There is a, a, a stump that has been chopped down. 
but there is this root uh, that comes from Jesse, the son of David, that is going to come and restore Israel. And chapter 12 is this kind of little bit of light in, the, in a bunch of darkness where Isaiah says that there will be a day when God will save Israel, and in that day, this is what you're going to do. This is what he's, he's putting words in their mouth. And he's saying that on the day that God saves you, this is how you will speak. This is how you will sing. And you will proclaim that God is a God of salvation. He is your strength. He is your song. And so I just want to look at two things today. God as our salvation and God as our song. So first, God as our salvation. Again, big picture in the early part of Isaiah Chapter 9, we see that judgment is going to fall on Israel for their unbelief and their idolatry and injustice. Chapter 10 and 11 says judgment is going to come to Israel, but it's also going to come to Assyria, and there will be this remnant who's going to be led by this root of Jesse. And chapter 12 looks to this time of renewal. And just zooming out on these six verses that I just read a second ago, the first two verses give this hymn of praise, and then in verse 3 there's this this oracle of promise that they're going to drink from the wells of salvation. And then verses four through six, again, they're another hymn that he puts on the lips of Israel where they're calling one another to praise God. And so Isaiah says that Israel is going to give thanks for the salvation that God brings, that his, his anger um, against their sin and their exile um, has turned to comfort as they return and they're restored to the promised land. And in verse two, um, they call out and say, behold, look, God is my salvation. God, is, the Lord God is my strength and my song. And that is the phrase I really want to hone in on today, that God is our salvation, our strength, and our song. Now, this phrase that Isaiah puts on their lips is not a random phrase. It's not something he just came up with out of nowhere. It harkens back to the book of Exodus and to Israel's own story when Israel was taken into slavery by Egypt and God promised to bring them out. In chapter 6 of Exodus, verse 6, God says, I will deliver you from slavery to Egypt, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and, and, and with a, a mighty arm. I think I've got that uh, quoted here wrong. An outstretched arm and a, uh, a strong arm, I think is how he puts it. And then in Exodus 15, after uh, Israel has been brought out of slavery, God delivers them. This same line is used by Moses in a song that he sings. He says, the Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. So when Isaiah puts this word on Israel's lips in Isaiah chapter 12, it's not out of nowhere. He is saying that the way that God has saved you before, and the way that that brought singing into the life of Israel, it's going to do the same thing again for you after you go into exile to Assyria. God is our salvation. And that salvation follows the pattern of the book of Exodus. And so that raises the question for us. What do we mean when we say that, that we are saved? What are we talking about when we say that Christianity offers salvation? The way that I think we most often think about that, the, the most common way, and it's not wrong, I just think it's, it's incomplete, but the overarching way that we tend to think about salvation is about forgiveness, which is important, very important, foundationally important. But it tends to become the, the only lens in which we look at salvation. You are either forgiven or you are not. 
You're either in or you're out. It's a binary. And so salvation gets reduced to that. And like I said, this is not wrong. It's just incomplete because um, if that's the only way that we think about salvation, that you're either in or out, you're either forgiven or not, then it tends to reduce Christianity to something almost otherworldly. It has everything to do with some future thing that's going to happen, a judgment someday down the road. And until then, I can just know I'm going to make it through that judgment. That's what salvation is all about. But I want us to see and hear today that salvation in Scripture is a much more comprehensive vision of deliverance. And so there are three things I want us to to reflect on when we think about salvation and God being our salvation. The first is that salvation is a general term. It's a general term with multiple related but distinct dimensions. It has to do with, yes, our guilt that God forgives us. And he reconciles us to himself. When we were enemies, we were hostile to him. That has to do with our status. We are either under, either under God's judgment or we are in his uh, state of grace and forgiveness, reconciled to him. But salvation also has to do with our shame. And this is something that we tend to overlook a lot. Um, salvation has to do with delivering us from our shame. The sin that we have committed, the sin that pervades the world in which we live, um, doesn't just make us guilty, it also corrupts us. It also uh, damages us so that we need to be cleansed and we need healing and we need uh, this honor to be given to us because of the disgrace that we've brought into our life. Salvation has to do with delivering us from shame. It also has to do with delivering us from fear. So much of what we experience in life is because of the fear that hangs over us because we know we live under the curse of death. And that fear traps us into cycles of dysfunctional, broken, sinful ways of living. And we become addicts. And so salvation is God liberating us and setting us free from the power of sin in our life. And it's delivering us from ultimately death itself. God says, I will raise you up on the last day. And so salvation has all of these dimensions in mind, our status, our health, our our maturity, um, our freedom. In all of this, Scripture says that God is our salvation. That's the first thing I want us to remember today. But secondly, salvation has a past and a present and a future implication for us. Salvation relates to our past. Obviously, all that we have ever done God can deliver us from that, set us free. He can forgive us, right? All that I have done, Christ pays for. But it also has present implications. Salvation in God means that we can be renewed and transformed and set free right here and now. And this is a part that I think we tend to overlook. We say, yes, I know I'm forgiven. But in all the ways that we face challenging things in our life today, We don't think about God as our Savior right here and now. But salvation also has future implications. It has to do with the future judgment. It has to do with the fact that we will all die and we will be raised up again to face God. And um, salvation means that we can live life forever with God. So salvation has a past and a present and a future implication. But thirdly, and this is very important that we get this, Salvation means that God does for us what we cannot do. God does for us 
what we cannot do, and that means salvation is a gift, it is fully and um, comprehensively grace. Now, I know a lot of you have been in church a long time, so I know I'm not telling you anything you haven't heard before, but sometimes we have to just sit with this for a while and reflect on this and remember um, that which we confess all the time. Salvation is rescue. It is deliverance for those that have absolutely no hope. If, if you were to fall down, most, most of us, if, if we were to fall down on the ground here and someone came over and, and helped you stand up, um, you would not say, you have saved me, right? You wouldn't say that. You would say, thanks for the help. You could have done it on your own. It might have taken you a while, some of us, but you probably could have done it for most of us, right? Um, we wouldn't say, you've saved me. We would say, thanks for the help. If you had um, a debt that um, was just a massive amount of debt and someone comes in and starts making some of the payments for you or supplementing the payments you're making, but eventually you'll be able to pay off this debt and you, you would say, oh, thank you for helping me uh, pay off this debt, right? Uh, that is not what salvation in Christ is all about. It, we're, we're on the ground and we can't get up and Christ lifts us up. We have a debt that we could never pay off and Christ pays it for us, right? If, if you have an illness and, uh, and someone comes and helps bandage your wounds and they kind of help you rest and they give you some medicine um, so that your body can kind of heal itself, that's great, but that's not the sort of saving that God does for us. He, he makes alive a person who is rotting with gangrene and uh, has an infection that will take their life. If you're in a prison and uh, someone knocks out the power and uh, hands you the key so that all the, the gates open and you can kind of hopefully fight off the guards and get out. That's great. They've helped you escape. But that's not what God does. He comes and subdues everyone and grabs a lifeless body out of prison and gives it life again. I'm trying to get to, you know, these through these metaphors, the point that salvation is an act of God upon people who could not do anything to help themselves. It is 100% a work of God to rescue us from things that would overpower us, which uh, we could never escape from, which we could never pay off, which we could never heal. It is a gift of grace. God is our salvation. By grace, we are saved. By grace, we are being saved. By grace, we will be saved. And friends, we all need saving. We all need saving. Now, I think that today, unlike uh, maybe 15 years ago, most people sense that they need some, at least some help, some, some serious help. Maybe not saving completely, but they believe they need some serious help. I used to, as a pastor, I used to feel like I had to convince people of this because people thought mainly uh, of salvation in terms of whether or not they're forgiven and most people didn't think they needed that much forgiving. They're a pretty good person. And so it was like, okay, I got to work to help you see that you need to be forgiven. But today, um, people sense that we are, uh, we're, we're pretty screwed up, right? I mean, we're feeling haggard, overwhelmed. It's, I think it's technology. I think it's the pace of life. I think it's trauma. I think there's all sorts of things. And most people are walking around feeling addicted or depressed or lonely, or ashamed, or stuck, or lost, or anxious, or physically unhealthy. Um, you know, more people than ever are looking for therapists. I'm not knocking that at all. I'm just saying it's a reality. People are like, I need help. My life is not going well, and I don't know what to do. 
Uh, maybe you're older and you're thinking that's not me, but I would say probably most people under 45 are feeling this way. Uh, I don't know if it's a generational thing or what. The thing is, most people today, I think, recognize they need help. But most people are not willing to admit that we are the problem. Or maybe they admit they are, they are part of the problem, but they, they cannot acknowledge just how deep the problem is. Because at bottom, the problem is that we all um, live as if we can save ourselves. You know, even the help that we seek is usually a help to give me some resources so I can um, handle it from here. We don't feel like we need to be rescued completely. We all turn to um, many saviors or things that we think can offer us some sort of salvation, right? The moralist, the moralist um, thinks about improving themselves through hard work and uh, clean living and uh, you know, healthy lifestyle. And we've got religious versions of this and we've got Instagram versions of this, right? Uh, there's a lot of religious people out there today who uh, think, you know, yeah, I'm going to live a good life, obey God. I'm going to try my hardest, honor him. And, and, and that's what's going to save me, right? And then we got a lot of people who uh, are saying, I'm going to be saved. Uh, I'm going to live a good life and experience salvation as I pursue an authentic life and pursue what makes me happy. Um, and so there's all sorts of ways that people are trying to rescue themselves from their problems. But none of this is salvation in the proper sense. Because salvation has to do with something being done for us that we could not do on our own. It, is, has, it has nothing to do with us. It's holy of God. And friends, that is at the heart of the message of Christianity. That's at the heart of what Isaiah is saying here, that um, salvation is a gift that that God does for you. Christianity is not in the truest sense or in the deepest sense a path, but it is a message, it is news, it is an announcement of what God does on our behalf. And so um, we must not be deceived. This is a message we have to hear in the church, even though I know a lot of you have gone to church your whole life. We have to hear this over and over and over again because we so easily slip into the idea that, um, that our good works are what justify us before God, that our efforts are what renew us and make us whole, that our faithfulness is what will lead us to live forever. Um, but that is not what Christianity teaches. It says that God is our strength and our salvation. Israel was brought up out of Egypt by the mighty arm of God. They could never have escaped Egypt, ever. There was no way they were getting out of the most powerful empire in the world. They, they were um, in chains and in bondage, and God brought 10 judgments on Egypt until they finally uh, were disarmed and gave up and God led Israel out of there. And friends, all of humanity is enslaved to our sin and is held under the curse of death. And so again, God sent his son to come into the world, into our exile, into our bondage, all the way down into God's judgment and down into death. And Jesus died to pay the penalty that we could never pay. He died to bring us back to God when we were his hostile enemies. He died to cleanse us of our sin and to heal us of all our corruption. He died to take away our shame. And he made us sons and daughters of him as king. He died um, to ransom us and set us free from the power of sin. And he died to defeat death so that we could be raised in glory. None of that is stuff that we could have done. Jesus did what we could never do, and so Jesus, and only Jesus, saves. 
And it's only if we rely wholly upon him and put our trust fully on him, to believe in him, to put our faith in him, that we will be saved. And if we do that, if we rely on Jesus, we trust in him, then the penalty of our sin is covered. We are justified and reconciled to God. The presence of sin in our life begins to be washed away and we begin to experience renewal. We're sanctified and we become uh, adopted children of God. We're crowned with Christ's honor and glory and we're saved from the power of sin. We're set free from sin which holds us into uh, addictions and bad habits and patterns of life that we know are destructive but we can't seem to shake. Jesus breaks that chain and, and begins to renew us and set us free. And one day we will be raised up. Death will not keep us, but we will shine like stars in the heavens. Friends, Jesus will save us, whether it's in this life or in the life to come, from all that plagues us. I want you to hear this. Everything that plagues you in your life, every challenge you face, everything that seems to hold you captive, every fear that you have, every guilt that you experience, Jesus saves us from all of those things, from addiction, from depression, loneliness, shame, bad habits, anxiety, abuse, oppression, betrayal, evil, poverty, disease. Jesus saves from all of that, not immediately, but eventually all of those things he rescues us from. That is the good news and the foundation of this church and really of every true church. This is not a club of nice people or good people with perfect lives. If you think that's what's going on here, you've missed it. And I'm sorry that if we haven't been clear enough about this. You are not good. <laughs> You're not good enough. You need to be saved. That is the message of all churches. Everything else that you turn to is false salvation. I'm not saying it's bad to get therapy or to take medicine. All those things are good things. We encourage all of those things. But at the bottom level, Jesus is the one who saves us from sin and from judgment and from death. And that is why Isaiah says to Israel and why we can say, God is our strength and our salvation. God alone is our strength and our salvation. And friends, that is why we sing. That is why we sing. That is why Isaiah says God is our song. And that's the second thing I want us to see today. In the day of Israel's salvation from exile, Isaiah says they're going to give thanks they're going to trust God and not be afraid in verses one or two, one and two. He says they will with joy draw from the wells of salvation. What a beautiful image of setting that bucket down, uh, down deep to get water that we don't have access to up here on the surface so that we can drink and live. And he says they will call one another to sing God's praises. Verses four to six are these, these calls to each other. Sing praises to God. Isaiah says Israel will sing because God is their song. Now, what does that mean? Again, go back to the Exodus. God saved Israel with a strong arm. He brought them out of slavery. And the very next thing we see in chapter 15 of Exodus is Israel sang Moses' song, where he rehearses God's deliverance. He talks about the triumph of God. He talks about Pharaoh's defeat, that the horse and his rider are washed up into the sea. But friends, that's not the only time we see this pattern of salvation leading to singing. It happens over and over and over again in Scripture. God saves and his people sing. Israel defeats Canaan. 
And Deborah and Barak sing Deborah's song in Judges chapter 5. Hannah is barren. That's interesting. That's not how we typically think about salvation. She's barren. But her barrenness is defeated and she has a child. And so Hannah sings a song in 1 Samuel chapter 2. All over the Psalms, enemies are defeated and they sing. Mary conceives Jesus and she sings. Jesus is born. The angels sing. Even in Revelation, the martyrs go through death, through the waters of death, and are in the presence of God, and they sing Moses' song and the song of the Lamb in Revelation chapter 15. All over Scripture, if God is your salvation, then he becomes your song. Singing is a window into our hearts, our love, our joy, our hope, and our trust. And if that is on God, then we sing praises to God. Now, what do you sing about? Most people sing at some point in their life. Most of us sing. What makes your heart sing? Is it the national anthem? Do you get more choked up singing the national anthem than you do rehearsing God's salvation in church on Sunday? Is it the school fight song? Is it songs about romance? Is it, I don't know, what else you might sing about? That might reveal something to you about what you treasure ultimately, where you're turning, where you're looking to for life. Do you sing when you come here or anywhere about God who is our Savior? I asked earlier why people sing. Um, but another question to ask is why people don't sing. Right? Singing is so natural to humanity that if we cannot sing or don't sing, that, that should just be a flag, a, a warning flag. Something's not right. There, there could be any number of reasons for this. Why don't you sing? For some of you, it's because you've forgotten that you needed to be saved. You've just forgotten that you were powerless and God rescued you. And, um, and you need to remember again what God has done for you. And put that song of God on your lips. For some of you, God is not your salvation. You, you don't sing because there's no joy there because you didn't think you needed to be saved. And he hasn't saved you. He seems irrelevant to you. He's just some powerful being out there that you're trying to satisfy some of his demands, obey just to get him off your back. But you don't know him as your savior. For some of us, God has been our salvation and he has been our song. But that song has faded because of confusion or because of hardship and you've become silent, and you don't know what to do with that because you used to love to sing. The thing is, sad people sing too. It's not just sadness. Some of the most beautiful songs are people singing their grief. When we don't sing, it's not because of sadness. It's because we've refused to feel that we're trying to protect ourselves from the pain. And if you do that long enough, try to protect yourself from whatever pain you're feeling, you will deaden yourself. And I want to tell you today that God is, um, he is able to hear your grief. He's able to hear um, your anger. Go read the Psalms. I mean, it's all over the place. When people are grieving and they feel lost and they're angry at God, they sing. And this is the healthiest thing they can do. I mean, I picked one as a good example. I love Psalm 126. It's a, it's a community lament. It's a time when God's people are remembering a previous time of God's mercy and they need it again. 
And so they cry out for a fresh show of mercy. And they say, uh, they say something like, restore our fortunes, O Lord. They say, he who goes out weeping will reap with shouts of joy. They recognize they're in a time of mourning, but they long for God to bring fresh mercy so that they can have joy again. And so I want to tell some of you not to deaden your heart. You need to sing. You need to sing that pain and that grief so that God will become your song of joy again. And I say that because Jesus knows the pain that you're experiencing. He came all the way down into it. And he cried out on the cross. He quoted the Psalms when he was in the, the depths of that forsakenness. And so um, you can follow him there. So what do we do with all this today? Well, first, obviously, we need to look to Jesus for our salvation. If you haven't ever done that, you need to do that now. But if you've done that, you need to continue to remember that God is our salvation. Um, whatever you're facing, don't, don't separate that from God, right? If you're stressed or you're sick or you're uh, overwhelmed with kids or you, you're confused, I mean, whatever it is you're going through, you need to do all sorts of practical things to try to, you know, get out of the problems you're facing. Yes, but at the bottom, you need to turn to God to save you. And then uh, you need to sing, and you need to sing with en uh, energy, right? I mean, part of what we do when we gather here is we help each other to put God's songs on our lips to remember that he has saved us. And you need to sing for you, but you also need to sing for other people. Um, you know, the New Testament is filled with passages that, that talk about how we are not just singing to God, but we're singing to one another, right? We're, we're bringing the word of God to each other. We're re reminding each other of salvation, and so when you come here, uh, you, you should sing not just for your own sake, but for the sake of your brothers and sisters. And when we do that, what it does is it helps us take what we know to be true and take it deep down into our hearts, right? There's a difference between knowing that um, honey is sweet and actually tasting the sweetness of honey. Those are two very different things. And singing, part of what singing does is it helps us taste the joy of our salvation, right? If you have a good meal and you sit there and it's the it's an incredible meal and you don't make a sound, I mean, nothing like, mm, like no, no noises like that, um, it's probably a little rude to the cook. But more than that, you're probably not actually experiencing the goodness of it as much as you could. Um, it, when you actually express that and praise the, the, the food, um, it actually enables you to experience the satisfaction and the goodness of it on a, on a deeper level. That's partly what singing does. And that's also um, what this meal is meant to do as well. Uh, as we go to this meal, um, it's a way of savoring and tasting God's salvation. It's, it's where we are um, not just thinking God is our Savior. It's a place where we actually taste God's salvation, that he is our strength. And so um, as we go to this meal in a moment, I want to encourage you um, to remember again what he has done for you and taste God's promises in the bread and the wine. Christ gave his life for you. He shed his blood to save you. And so let's feast. And then in a moment, we will sing. Let's pray together.